Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You wake up in the morning, and then what happens? <laughs> oh, put your headphones on, Peter. Uh, uh. Oh, yeah. Come on, put your arms around. <laughs> I want to hug you and hug you and hug you some more right through all these microphone cables. <laughs> Go ahead. I know I'm in the right time in the right space. Do you feel that? I'm Helga Davis. When I hear the word tradition, I usually get a little bit tense. It worries me, tradition. It worries me that perhaps something that I think or feel or am doesn't have space at that table. What's beautiful about the work that Alejandro is doing at the All Souls Unitarian Church is that he's taking a tradition of music, and he's just expanding the conversation, but with so much love, with such beautiful music, and with a group of people who really want to go along for that ride. The reason I was so excited to talk to you is that I feel like you're doing everything right First of all, you've, you're, you're kind of undertaking this mission to bring contemporary classical music into not just, not just to a new audience, but also into, into a church. And the first thing that I, I think you did right was that you put the ensemble in the congregation. Mm-hmm. And so we were surrounded by the choir. Yeah. You're part of the music. You're we are part of the right, music. Exactly. And we had all those voices move through us. Mm-hmm. Um and so there there really wasn't there wasn't anywhere for anyone to go. We were in that together. That's the way I like to do music. Mm-hmm. How do we make the audience be a part of a performance not from the perspective of Okay, you're the listeners, and you're gonna, you know, gonna clap, and you're gonna be silent. You're gonna actually participate in the experience. You're gonna be hearing each piece from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. You're going to react differently according to where you are sitting. You're going to uh, be served this large meal that is well paced and in which all the flavors have a connection. And your job is just to react to it and to enjoy it or not. Right. But we want to challenge you with something that is more than just a presentation and in which you have just the role of being a listener. Of being passive. Yeah, being passive. And and that's why I think it was it was so beautiful for me because I want to participate. Right. Right? Right. And I feel that your invitation was undeniable and it is. It just, it wasn't possible to say no. Right. <laughs> Again, whether or not you like the music seemed for me to not be the point. Yeah. There was an experience and an agreement made mm-hmm. by all of us to come together. And, and that's what music is about, right? And that's I what mean, music really, is about. Really, just bringing people together. So there was a one moment when the sound was coming from behind us, and it was probably the most fascinating moment for me in the performance, because you see how accustomed we are to looking at something. 
and having our looking be the way that we participate. Mm -hmm. So if we look, then we can say, I was there. (laughs) And being there actually has very little to do with what you do with your eyes. It's really what you do with yourself, with your breath, with your heart in Mm -hmm. those moments. Mm -hmm. So the music is coming from behind us, and suddenly no one has anything to look at. (laughs) And they're the kind of audience who are are too socialized to pull out phones or anything like that mm-hmm. so everyone knows that they're not that's not allowed <laughs> um and then people can't are not talking obviously mm-hmm. and they're not necessarily looking at each other mm-hmm. and they don't know what to do <laughs> but there came a moment when the room got so still mm-hmm. And it was as if people finally got it. There's nothing for you to do here except be here. And the room got so still and so peaceful and so quiet. Do you feel that too? Of course. The energy, when when it's right, you feel the energy. It's all over. It's all around you. I mean, you can hear the silence that you get when you're having the right moment. It's a different type of silence. Is is a silence that is charged. It's it not is just right. Empty. It's yes. charged, and I absolutely felt it several times during that program. I was just mentioning before that, um, in order for that to happen, you need these elements, right? You need a perceptive conductor, a conductor that is able to connect. You need a very responsive choir that is able to give more than they think they have. Yeah. And a very, very not only attentive, but hungry audience like yourself. Hungry. I'm definitely hungry. hungry. <laughs> wanting to take everything in. Sometimes even when people don't like it, if they have a kind of attitude, they'll find something interesting in it. Nothing kills me more than the audience that is looking at program notes, reading through the program notes while the music is playing because it just completely destroys the purpose of being there, which is experiencing that moment, getting away from your daily life and taking a step back and looking inwards. It's like meditating. You're all of a sudden meditating. But, you know, we're afraid, Alejandro. I mean, as as a person who who was in that audience, and I think sometimes we just, we are not, We're not wanting to be in that silence, which, again, is why it's so important to have a program that invites people in, right? Mm -hmm. Indeed, yeah. And this feels like the overarching message. Yes, you're trying to do this thing where you're introducing a new generation of composers and music to an audience that may be accustomed to more... I don't know what kind of music, traditional repertoire, Mm -hmm. but you're getting them and you're really inviting us into a different conversation, which is about being together. Right. I think one of the challenges that audiences have experienced with, with contemporary music in particular is that we have labeled it as such. We've tried to make it a presentation about something very specific. So you have a lot of contemporary music ensembles, which is great. We need to have them. But sometimes when you take away those labels and just 
present music for the beauty of it. It really doesn't matter when the composer was born or when huh. he died or whether he's alive or she's alive. From it your really lips to God's matter. ears, Alejandro. Exactly. Really. So it just, it really um, becomes the experience what matters, not the repertoire. Um, and presented the way I think I, I'm, I'm attempting to present it makes the music be as spiritual sometimes as any Bach cantata. You know, Bach is one of the greatest composers, I think, in history and certainly one of my greatest inspirations. But when you present something by Taverner um, in a way that is spiritual, not as contemporary music, but as spiritual music, it just completely changes everything. And people forget about all those labels. And it becomes just the moment, right? The moment, the, the sound, it's all about the sound at the end, really. The other thing that I I think is is important to talk about here too is your work is not just to teach music and to to lead this choir it's also to manage people right and we are very complicated yes the humans <laughs> sure <laughs> <laughs> yes absolutely it's a um, challenging job. Um, the psychology of leading a choir is its a very important part of a position. I am demanding, but at the same time, I think of the choir members as almost as family. Um, I think of a, of a choir, the relationship between a choir and a conductor as a long-term relationship and a relationship that will continue to grow. Um, just like in any relationship, at the beginning it feels a little awkward and you have to, you know, try a little harder to be uh, around each other and all that. But soon enough, all those barriers go, go away and, and then you begin to enjoy each other, not only for the for the pleasant things, but also for the quirky the things, things or the yeah. hard things. And it's all part of the experience. And, and just like in music, you know, there's moments of release and moments of tension. And I think uh, welcoming both. And okay, I have to I have to stop you, and yeah. we have to go back a little bit. Yes. So, I'm also very interested in psychology. So now I'm curious: <laughs> Are you an only child? If you're not an only child, where are you in your family? And how how is your role or your place in your family similar to the role? you have as conductor and how you work with people? That is very interesting um, as a question. I am the last of eight, you Whoa. know, from Mexico. So it's a large family, the last of eight. And uh, kudos to my parents for that, by the way. It, it's, I cannot, I have one child and I, I, I don't, I don't <laughs> see how, how it was done. But in any case, your, to your question, observing the dynamics between my brothers and sisters and their children and the cousins and all that, when you're the last child, of such a large family, really you start analyzing everything. Everything becomes, becomes analysis. You learn from their experiences. You learn what to do and what not to do. And I am a true believer that you become somewhat older and wiser faster. So say more about what it is you think you learned. Communication, how you communicate with people and how you respect other people's way of behaving, way of being. Um, I think those, those are the two most important things that I've learned. Um, and when you apply that to acquire, 
it becomes reciprocal. Because um, once once you give that other person the same respect that you're expecting, you'll get it. Also, you know, being from Mexico itself, a country with with very different priorities. Where in Mexico are you from? Guadalajara. I am from a family, a middle-class family in Mexico. My, my dad was a musician. He was a, a bass player. And, you know, being a musician in Mexico is extremely challenging. Again, a country with, with different priorities. Um, but coming from that background where, you know, I had to make money from the age of 10 and and basically I've been responsible for myself from the age of 15 when my dad died, um, it, you just become much more, I guess, uh, appreciative of life and the details of life and people and what people bring to your life. And really it's changed everything, the way I perceive the world. Um, so you were performing at 15? I, I've been working, 10? making music for a living since I was 14, 15 years old. Um, and what were you doing? I started working with choirs as an accompanist, mm -hmm. just accompanying choirs. And at the beginning it was just, you know, learning. I actually learned from some of the most legendary uh, choral conductors in Mexico that way because they needed an accompanist and I could provide that for free. So I started doing that and then eventually I started making money through it. Um, so working with choirs has been ex an experience of um, now several decades, even though I'm not I'm not too old. Um, but, you know, it's something that I started doing in my teens and not only learning the repertoire and learning how other conductors work was extremely valuable to me, but just, again, the psychology of working with a lot of people at the same time. Because you have to understand, when you put a lot of choristers together, you know, people, people change. It's like children people. all of a sudden. <laughs> people. And it's, and it's actually endearing. It's, it's actually a wonderful thing. It's, it's a really wonderful thing. Um, it, it's one of the great joys of working with a choral group. So you're, you're number eight of eight in your mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. You're talking about a kind of wisdom that you feel you had that maybe your other brothers and sisters didn't have. Well, in my case, my father got sick when I was about 11 or 12. And, you know, with illness came also financial challenges, etc. So all that, that experience for me as a child and then as a teenager, as a teenager, finally losing my father, it really changes you completely. So those struggles, you know, at the end, change your perception on, on life, on music. When I'm very moved by a piece of music, all those collective experiences come to mind and you find profundity in what you do. Again, it is not something that, that I wish on anyone, but if you think about it, everyone in life suffers one way or another, right? We go through trials and tribulations and, and the way you've experienced those those moments in your life really shape up how you make music because music is all about feelings at the end, right? And feelings, emotions. Um, and I think it has had a really great impact in my, in my music making. In what way? Well, in so many ways. I, I, the way first and anything I experience music myself, how it moves me, uh, it moves me deeply sometimes and how I can connect my experiences, whether they be beautiful or tragic, and communicate them to another group or to my instrument when I'm playing the piano. Um, it is, I think, very important. You know, when you think about all these composers, Bach, Schubert, Beethoven, you know, 
they suffer tremendously. And it's unbelievable the things that they were they, they went through. I mean, Beethoven uh, from um, when was it, 1778 to about 1808, created the most incredible music there's ever been created in in just even less than that, in eight years, from 1800 to 1808, he composed six symphonies, an opera, some of the greatest chamber music ever, the greatest string quartets ever written, some of the greatest sonatas ever written. I mean, I, I cannot think of any composer that in eight years was able to do all what this. He did. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he was losing his hearing, he was having abdominal pain on a daily basis, he was having... Um, inflammation in his feet and his hands it, and how a person that suffers so much can create something so beautiful the only way to explain it is by taking the challenges of life and somewhat translating them into sounds into music and that's how i see myself you know whatever happens to me in life again whether it be joy or tragedy I tried to translate it into emotions that go into my music making. Was your father your first teacher? He taught me music theory and okay, things like that. Okay, so he was your first Just, teacher right. in a way. And then did you know that you wanted to play piano? What was his instrument? Bass. Okay. Um, well, first than anything, I was um, uh, started very late. I was first in a choir. I started in a choir for about two years, boys choir. Then when my voice changed, I moved on and I started playing the piano. So I was already, what, uh, maybe 11 or 12 when that happened. That is very old for a pianist, right. uh, for a professional <laughs> musician. But I, you know, I, I liked it and I practiced somewhat. Um, but then when I was about 14 or 15, uh, music from, uh, a musician, excuse me, from, from the States came to Mexico, a pianist, Richard Tetley, his name, and he took me in as a student. And he thought I had talent and he encouraged me. So I started working harder. But then my dad got sick. And, and when he passed away, um, I had to be realistic and, and decide what to do with my life. It's such a horrible word. And, and music, word, you know, realistic. music didn't, yeah, exactly. Music didn't seem like a... A realistic like, choice Yeah, exactly, for you. like a good choice. So I applied to architecture school. I got in, I was ready to go. And then I gave a recital. It was in May uh, of 1994, thinking that that was it, you know, just to wrap things up. So I gave the recital, and in the audience there was this couple, uh, a gentleman from the United States, a lady from from Britain, and they came to uh, to the green room afterwards, and they said they loved what I was doing and and my interpretations, and they wanted to have a tape from the performance. So we gave them a tape. We we became friends throughout that uh, summer, but without me knowing, they contacted a bunch of people in the United States. Wow. Uh, and they say, you know, this kid has talent and I think he should be uh, receiving some help so that he can continue his studies. Because I told them, you know, I want to be a musician, but I don't think I can. Um, so they eventually found this school that was interested in me, uh, Shenandoah University in Winchester, Virginia. And um, after the whole application process, I was given a full scholarship, four years, free ride, room and board, tuition, everything paid for. They even got a family to pay for my plane ticket. Wow. It's it's amazing. It's just been a long journey. I remember telling my mom when, when I was packing for for the trip, uh, it'll probably be just a year. And I'll try to just learn English and I come back and I'll, you know, study architecture or do something with with my life. And, you know, I'm still here. I 
and you're still here. I went on and I got married here. Now I have a baby that was born in New York. And again, it's all, it's mind boggling how life takes you on this different path, you know, that sometimes you don't, you don't anticipate. What about your little one? Santiago. Santiago is, is he? wonderful. He's now a year and a month and or 13 months. Uh, and he is so cute. I mean, he just, again, um, changes my life, you know, every day. It's always different. It's amazing how observant you become when you have a baby. I didn't, I didn't realize more. that. Say more about that. Every day, you know, it's something. Every day I see different movements, different facial expressions, uh, different ways of him trying to communicate with me about, you know, anything, uh, to give him something or to read him a book or to give him a ball, something. It's it's amazing. And I think that since I had him, um, I see music differently. And I open a score and I see things that I didn't see before. You become more observant. You really start to get more from what you are looking at. It can be mundane or it can be something like a score, you know, a piece of music or listening to a piece of music and you really become more aware. And uh, I don't think it's unique to me. I think really when you have something so precious to take care of and, you know, you're on top of every detail, I think you become more open. I think you're, you're it's like a, like a um, filter that kind of goes away and you have all of a sudden more awareness of things. It's amazing. Is he in the church with you when you have rehearsals, or does he does he come? Is he trying to sing? Is he, what's he doing? Well, first thing I think he loves music uh, because if we we try not to do too much TV or anything like that, but if we show him something on on, on the screen that doesn't have music, he doesn't care. But if <laughs> if there is some music involved, he'll just all of a sudden pay attention, and it doesn't have to be kitty music. It can be. Um, you know, I play in some sometimes Berlin Philharmonic uh, concerts and things like that. Cause I'm, you know, looking at things like that, and he likes it. Um, the, the funny thing with with that, you know, that question that you just asked, um, when he was littler, he could sit down for a long time and just be quiet and just listen. But now he gets excited and he shouts. So he's not <laughs> he's not as welcome in a, you know you know in a rehearsal environment as, as he used to be. But uh, that's just normal of, of kids that age. And I just hope he loves to or he learns to love music. Mm-hmm. You know, that's important to me. I don't care what he does with his life as far as his profession, but uh, I want him to be happy, of course, that's that's all I want. But uh, I hope music is a big part of his life. Yeah. It's the most delicate and difficult experiment to have a child. And, you know, there's no manual for it. You know, you don't get right. a bunch of books, but uh, your child your child is unique. You know, it's, it's, it's a very unique being, and, and uh, the responsibility is so huge. Yeah. And with regard to your father and your music and all of the things that that you have accomplished and achieved what's the effect of of not having him mm. or i don't want to presume anything mm-hmm. maybe you feel you have him yeah, and I do. so i i'm right so i want to take that back no no it's it's a it's a valid question i i was always inspired by my father he was um you know he was the principal bass player of the orchestra in the city. That was that was a big deal. Now, Mexico has different priorities. People in Mexico love music like 
like no one else. I mean, music is everywhere. You go to a party and there will be music. Not in not from the speaker, but actually somebody pulling Musicians. out a guitar and yes. making music. Um, so being a musician in Mexico is is highly respected, but it's 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 not always uh, financially appreciated. You know, the government doesn't support it as much. The private sector doesn't support it as much as in the as in the, the United States. Excuse me. So it's it's a challenge. But I always admire him. Um, he had a lot of respect from a lot of colleagues. Um, and I realized that I wanted to be a musician pretty late. And, and you know, the funny thing with, with my situation between my father and I, I think when he was around, I didn't have a clear sense that I wanted to be a musician. Um, because? Well, you know, he died when I was 15. At 15 is when I, for, I finally got to study with somebody that really thought that I could do this for a living. Huh. Um, and then, then that's when things got difficult. Um, so I really, I don't think he ever had the sense that, okay, he's going to do what I do and he might be good at it. Um, and I never got the chance to show him that I had potential to do that. So it's, it's, I go back to my childhood memories of music with him. You know, he would take me sometimes when I had a day off from school to a rehearsal. I remember very um, vividly one one moment. I was about 10, but I was in the theater. My dad was playing and uh, big program. They had um, Richard Strauss's Don uh, Quixote and a bunch of other Germanic, you know, big pieces. And then at the end, um, they closed with a Mexican piece called Huapango, which is kind of like the second national anthem for Mexicans. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's simple, but it's so, it just, as a Mexican, it just really makes your chest, you know, come out and, and feel very proud. So I was, I remember I was sitting there with my mom in the concert and, you know, the concert went by, right? Almost um, close to the end, I start hearing this music and it just sounded different. Um, so I look up and I remember started hearing the percussion and the bass and, and I started to pay more attention. And it was the wapango that I was being played. And I stood a little taller and I was so moved by it. And I, I very clearly remember I was 10, but I really felt you know this sensation in your skin that you get when you're very excited or very moved about something. And I, I didn't know how to react to it. It was just the first time I felt something like that. And I went backstage afterwards to hide to my dad and all that stuff. And um, a clarinetist, a friend of the family, came out and said, so what do you think of Don Quixote? He thought, you know, that was the piece that... <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I, don't, I don't remember much of that, but I really love Wapango. You know, that was just amazing. <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't find words to express how I felt. But that's the first time that I felt a real connection with music in association with my dad with what happens on stage, with how music makes you feel as a person, that was the first time I realized, wow, you know, this is really powerful stuff. And now you see it in your son. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's so visceral. It's so real. And as you so, said at the beginning, it's so hard to describe. It's just hard, hard to, so abstract at the same time that there's always this big search for trying to make it even, even more powerful. Um, if that's even possible. 
I want you to talk a little bit about the experience of music through the body. Mm-hmm. What happens to you physically mm-hmm. when you're conducting? Hmm, that's a good question. Let's see. Well, I, if you look at a conductor, just look at a conductor and you have, you don't include the sound in that experience. It's a dance. It's just a dance. Um, you look ridiculous probably if, if, <laughs> if you were just looking at that without any music, but, but it is a dance and it's a very, very physical activity. I always feel that the best conductors are the ones that are able to connect with that dance element in the music. Um, so I, I do think that that music and the physical experience of making music, uh, it, it, it's very, it's very present. It's very important. That connection is very important. I remember when I was uh, uh, in at school, you know, playing the piano, and I, the first time I played for my teacher in my master when I was doing my master's degree in in UT Austin in Texas, um, I finished my piece of music that I that I played for him, the first one that I played, and the first thing he said is that he thought I had a very strong physical connection with the instrument. You know, that I really enjoyed the tactile sensation of making music. And he had not seen that very often. That most people enjoy that oral sensation as pianists. But I had a real, real um, sense of enjoyment from just feeling the instrument and how that translated into body movement. And I think that's helped me a lot as a conductor. I feel very comfortable. For me, conducting is kind of like speaking. I don't think about it. I just start feeling it and it just happens. It's important to make that connection um, between body movement, sensations, and music. They're not separate, they're really connected. And then you have the choir who are sort of relegated to standing still, right? right? (laughs) So that they they catch. Right, well, but it's, it's, you know, it's something that I always try to um, mention to my choir, to relax. You know, to feel the music. You don't necessarily need to, you know, tap to the music to feel it. If you move a little bit, if you relax your knees a little bit, you start opening up the music a little bit more. You know, our program that we did last year and we're going to repeat not the same pieces but the same concept, Voices in Motion, has that in, in mind. Experiencing music through movement, both from the perspective of the listener, the audience, and the performer. Mm-hmm. And I think when you connect to your to what's natural to humans, movement, your heart, you know, it's a it's a beat, right? It just becomes it becomes more real. I'm curious too about how music touches all of the the emotions, right? So I have my clean my bathroom music. <laughs> I have my uh, if I'm having a particularly anxious moment. Mm. There are a couple of songs that I love. Like mm-hmm. I put my underwear on mm-hmm. and my socks and I dance around <laughs> my living room and like clean the windowsills and yeah, okay, enough <laughs> of that. Um, but music and grief mm. as a way through grief. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how you feel music 
not not helps the grieving process, but just the relationship between music and grief. Well, for instance, there anything you're right about that. There's music for every moment, and and uh, it's not the same for every person, right? Right. Um, music is probably the closest bridge to the soul there is. I remember when my dad passed away, uh, there is um, a song called um, Amor Eterno, Eternal Love, um, by a Mexican singer, pop singer, called Juan Gabriel. And that song talks about, it's a, he wrote it for his mother. Uh, it's about loss, right? He lost his mother and he wishes she was alive. Um, and we couldn't play that song around the house because my, my mom would just fall apart. Uh, very powerful. And I never understood why, because he didn't do the same to me. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I would hear it, I was like, what's the, what's the big deal? Why is she crying now? Um, but you know, now that I'm older and I understand, um, there is a certain series of tones or words that will strike a chord and it's so powerful it'll it'll bring you to tears without you expecting it um sometimes it's a song in connection to a moment sometimes it's, it's a song in, in itself um there are some Bach cantatas that just they're so powerful that every, every time I listen to them I may not ball and start, you know, just, I guess, become hysterical, but I, I do feel very moved by, by this music. Um, if I could think of one piece of music that does that to me, Mozart's Requiem, for example, if I listen to just the first movement, just how it begins, you know, with a single beat on the strings, very simple, and then there is this hanging basset horn note that just lasts for a little longer than everything else. It's so moving. It's so powerful. And grief is the word, the, the word that comes to mind when I hear that. And I wonder what was going through his head, you know, through Mozart's head when he was writing this. As you know, he was about to die when he was writing this. He didn't complete the piece of, this piece of music. He just couldn't finish it. Um, but that, that connection to something that that is so um, unavoidable, such as death. Um, I mean, from from the composer of a perspective, what must be so incredibly powerful. I don't know other pieces of music that have that kind of connection because, again, he was very aware that that was his own requiem, mm -hmm. even though you know it was a commission and all this. He knew he was writing that for himself. Um, it's it's amazing to think about that. Because if if music can have such a powerful connection to somebody just listening to a song, imagine to the composer. I mean, what it can do to to his soul, and how deep you can go into your into your soul and your mind when you're when you're writing something like that. Here's here's the thing I I would like to come back to with you a little bit and that is this this thing of your place in your family and then your place in front of the choir. Mm -hmm. So they were together before you came. Mm -hmm. And what was it like your first day with them 
Well, uh, my first day with, with the Musica Viva Choir was, you know, my audition, uh, and I had just 15 minutes with them. 15? Yeah, just a short time. And it all of a sudden felt like when you drive a car, it just feels great, right? Mm. Just, you know, where everything is. It's very intuitive. And it just, yeah, it just felt like the right the right group to work with. And I could see it in their faces. When you're a conductor and you have all these set, sets, excuse me, of eyes looking at you, and you can tell when they sparkle. You know, once you, you make a connection, uh, it's very obvious. And it's also very obvious when it's not there. And with this group, it was just there right away. It was just uh, part of that experience. Everybody was really connected to me. And it just felt great from the beginning. Um, then when I got the job, I made a commitment that I wanted to work with the same group of people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of new music directors and new administration, and they have additions, and sometimes they dismiss people. And I made a commitment that I wanted to work with this group of people because they're like a family, and they sound great together um, because they lift each other up. Uh, the choir has been in existence for about... From 1977, yeah, something exactly, like that? Yeah, exactly, from about four years. And with the same music director. So really it's become a very, very tight group of people. It's obviously not, not the same people that, that, that were there from the beginning, right. but some of their uh, original members are still there. And, and it's just great to see that kind of continuity. And it is like, it is a relationship and it's a, a committed relationship. Yes, absolutely. And you know, in this case, I mean, they have a dual role. They are the, in concert uh, form, they are the Musica Viva Choir. And in worship form, they are the All Souls Choir. It's the same group of people right. that sing Sunday to Sunday. And then they get to do these wonderful concerts uh, right now four times a year. That's a curious thing, though, that, you know, the church is in the business of, of uh, soul saving. Mm -hmm. And you are there with a bit of a different mission. Well, um, I, I don't know if it's a different mission. I mean, my mission is... Well, your mission is beautiful music. Right. And it's, in a way, it's like soul-saving. I really see music almost as a, as a spiritual experience. For some people, a religious experience. Even if the music is completely secular, uh, it's still a, a spiritual experience, at least to me. So I, I, in a way, it's easy to, to reconcile those things. Uh, particularly with a group, again, that, that does both, right? It's always a spiritual experience. At least that's the, the way I'm trying to communicate it to, to um, our audience and to our choir. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you do with the choir, with Musica Viva. I had such a beautiful experience being in that audience, and it's really great to just sit across from you and hear a little bit about your life and about your new love yeah. <laughs> yeah. and and about your family. I live in Harlem. I really hope to to be able to walk out of my door and hear you. Thank you. And share your desire to have more in all of our communities uh, and to see all of us sitting together in the wonder of what it is that we do, which is to make music. 
thank you so much for coming here. Thank you, Helga. It's just a, an incredible opportunity to to talk about music and about life. You know, yeah, they're so interconnected, right? That is really they, wonderful they are to the be same able to thing. exactly, exactly. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I wonder in what ways you experience that word, tradition. Where are the places in your life that you come up against an edge of something that you really want to change, that you really want to be part of, that you really want to see expand so that there's room for you? I'm curious. I want to know. You can email me at helga at wqxr.org or follow me on Facebook. This episode of Helga was produced by Julia Alsop and executive producer Alex Ambrose. It was mixed by Curtis McDonald with help from Hannes Brown and original music by Alex Overington. Special thanks to Cindy Kim, Lorraine Maddox, Michael Alcesser, Jacqueline Sincata, and John Chow.